Hey everybody, welcome to Latter-day Struggles. This is your host Valerie and I have Nathan here by my side today again. Hey Nathan. Hello. How are you? I'm wonderful. How are you? Good. Coming at you today on a Sunday afternoon and looking really forward to this conversation that we're about to have with you today. I This might be revealing in um, more obvious ways than even usual how big of a nerd I am, but I love, love studying and talking about stage theories. It's one of my favorite things. I don't know. It's great. I, I love it too. I, so, I never thought I would ever say something like that, but yeah. it's been fascinating. If you guys are interested in uh, in one of my favorite theories, jump back to episode number 33, and that is the uh, the stage theory that was sort of coined by Scott Peck. But today, what I want to do is let me just give you a little bit of a rundown of what you can expect in our time together. I'm going to offer to you a just a bit of a review on some of the big stage theories. Let me first define what that means. Stages of growth and development. And it's a really great way to contextualize what we're going through when we're feeling like we're going through something that is challenging, overwhelming, and is uh, disorienting to us. Once we can situate our own experience inside of a theory of change, it makes our suffering a lot less. And so that's probably why I have this fascination with and love for a good stage theory, because it actually prevents um, and makes meaning of suffering. So I'm going to talk a little bit to you guys about these various theories. And then today we're going to go deeper into what I'm going to call, at least for me, it's a new, it's a new stage theory. Would you call this a new stage theory, Nathan, or did you already kind of know about this one? No, I mean, I've had to learn about it for sure, but um, to me, the, the difference is, is that to me, what we're going to talk about today is not sort of like move from one thing to the next thing to the next thing, but we're going to talk about how some elements of stage theory actually cycle back on themselves over and over again. Some elements of stage three or stage, stage theory, stage how, theory. How some of the different stages in these stage theories actually cycle, which might be a little bit different than what we talked about in uh, podcast 33. Uh, or even some of the the stage theories you're going to touch on. Yeah. Today we're going to talk a little bit more about sort of a cyclic nature of of some of these stage theories. Okay, that that's great. Okay, so let's let's go ahead and rather than talking about what we're going to talk about, let's go ahead and talk about it. <laughs> Sounds good. Okay, so let me just open you up with, okay, the father of uh, spiritual development stage theories is a man by the name of Fowler, and he has a six stage stage theory. That I'm not going to go into a lot of detail on, but he is sort of what what most scholars believe to be the first one that really looked at what is um, sort of a, a normal way of progressing into and through one's own faith and religious development. My understanding is, and I'm happy for you guys, if any of you out there are smarter than me on this, you can come correct me, but I'm, my belief is that I don't believe anything, there was an idea or a phenomenon around this normal way that a human being grows in their faith development before James Fowler came along and um, did this research and wrote about it. So he writes a book called Stages of Faith. I had to look behind me because it's sitting behind me um, in our little podcasting studio, Stages of Faith. I will, I will link these all in the show notes, by the way. The next one I'm going to just make quick reference to is, like I said before, Scott Peck. He does a four-stage stage theory, and I really, really, really like how he talks about moving from um, a place of simplicity into perplexity, and then how he really talks about the possibility that we all have of moving into this mystical communion-like way of being in relationship with ourselves, God, and others. The books that I would reference, I would uh, direct you to to learn more about his stage theories um, or his his theory is is a book by the name of, well, all of his Road Less Traveled series, he has three of them, but he also in sort of a concise way talks about it in his book called A Different Drum. Okay, and then we're gonna move on to another stage theorist who's actually really in the last few years has become a, a much bigger name. His name is Brian McLaren, and he is a previous or a, a former evangelical pastor that went through his own faith development, sort of a deconstruction, reconstruction sort of thing in the evangelical slash Protestant world. 
And he has found himself um, now a colleague of uh, Father Richard Rohr, who of course is Catholic. So he has a stage theory where he moves us. Um, once again, it's a four stage stage theory. And the book that you're going to want to read, if you want to go really deeply into his findings and the way he sort of conceptualizes all of this, uh, that book is called Faith After Doubt. And I love that book. That's an excellent book. And then last but not least, and I'm probably forgetting some, I'm sure there's probably more stage theories out there. So I don't want to pretend like this is a conclusive list of all the stage theorists. These are just the ones that I've studied is I've also spent some time talking about um, Richard Rohr and how he talks a lot about the first half of life and the second half of life and breaks it down really in this, in this part of his studies, he just breaks it down into two stages and um, the first and second half of life. Now, the thing that's going to be kind of fun about what we're talking about today is that I think Richard Rohr has been a scholar, a thinker, a theologian, a writer. He seems to say, he talks about about 50 years, right? Mm -hmm. I think he's in his 80s. And I think if you yeah. started when he really started writing, it was probably in his 30s. So this doesn't surprise me too much that his own ideas have evolved, which in some ways is precisely as they should, right? Right. And so he had the two-stage theory, which I think is lovely. You would find a lot about that in his book, Falling Upward. And then we're actually going to talk about another way of looking at stages. And this, like Nathan mentioned, almost like a, a cyclical way of looking at stages through another one of Richard Rohr's ideas. And that's where we're going to spend a lot of our time today. And that you can find, we're going to be making reference to, yes, you have heard us talk a lot about this book. I promise we're going to talk about other books, which we, we are already talking about other books, but Nathan and I have admittedly been kind of obsessed with the universal Christ the last, I don't know, six weeks or so. So deal with it. <laughs> <laughs> and so we're going to be jumping into, and I'm going to actually be reading some portions of the universal Christ when we talk about this, this new er stage theory that uh, Father, Father Richard Rohr is teaching us about. Okay, yeah. so those are the stage theories. And then, but what we're going to do before we even talk about Richard Rohr's new stage theories is, Nathan, if you would, what I would like you to do is why don't you kick off sort of setting the, setting the stage, no pun intended, because we're talking about stage theories, set up the stage for why these stage theories um, are, can be found everywhere. Right. So in the stage theories that that you just mentioned one of the the common themes of those stage theories uh is that there's sort of this linear movement from this to that to this to that and and the reason they create those linear movements is because you can see it you can see people who were this and then they become this and then they become that and you kind of number these stages one two three four whatever but what we're going to talk about today is a little bit different way of looking at it. It's not the entire person, but it's taking pieces of the person. And it just shows how we as people cycle through uh, this, this uh, what we call the, the birth, the death, and then the rebirth. And one of the reasons why this is so powerful is because it exists everywhere. So all good theories ought to be observable. When you look out into the world, you can say, if, if this is true, I should be able to observe it. And if you can observe it in a lot of places, it probably tells you that it is common to all humanity. And that's what we've kind of learned, been learning about is this cycle of birth, death, and then rebirth. So some of the places that you'll see this exist. Um, so in literature throughout time, there is this concept of what's called the hero's journey. And the hero's journey is a story and it tends to have some fairly common elements. You have a person and often it's a person who is uh, wealthy or noble, but highly immature, who then has to leave for some reason, the palace, the kingdom, the wealth, the whatever, and they have to go into the real world and they have a whole bunch of experiences. They have experiences of suffering, they have experiences of, of falling in love, they have experiences of dying or near death. Um, but these, these suffering and love and near death type experiences start to transform them. And then in this sense of their transformation, they actually return back to the home or the homeland or the family that they started with, they often return back. But when they return back, 
they are changed. They are grown up. They have a much wider and expansive view of themselves and others. And this theme that we see called the, the hero's journey exists in a lot of places. And I think you wanted to touch a little bit first on Joseph Campbell's work on the hero's journey, and then we'll go from there. So Joseph Campbell is a scholar on myth, and I am attracted to anybody that follows or I actually, I love, uh, love Carl Jung and I'll be darned. I also have always really, really respected the work of Joseph Campbell. And as I was studying him a little bit more, he got a lot of his um, inspiration from his own study of Carl Jung and Jungian psychoanalysis. So yes, he is the one who basically systematized this idea of a hero's journey. He noticed in his own scholarship that it's everywhere. And then he went through and, and wrote about these stages of the hero's journey. And as we're going to show you, um, Nathan and I actually made a list of all of the places where you will see it. But Joseph Campbell specifically looked at the hero's journey from the perspective of not only mythology, but also if you look at the modern myth, um, look at a, a Disney film, look at the Star Wars series. Um, oh, what's the other one? The Lord of the Rings. That these. This is a common element that you see throughout um, our culture, at least, and I'm sure it's in other cultures. I just haven't studied other cultures enough to speak intelligently about them. But it's this idea that we go on a journey and we come back changed. He actually has 12 stages of the hero's journey. And the book that I won't probably go through those today, I kind of want to, but I'm going to, I'm going to resist the urge because we have a lot of other things to talk about today. But if you're interested in the book, uh, in his scholarly work on this, the book is called A Hero with a Thousand Faces. And I will, once again, I will, uh, Go ahead and list all of these books that I'm mentioning in the show notes today. So Joseph Campbell is the scholar that talks about this idea of hero's journey. But we're going to also talk to you guys about how it happens not only in culture, in our own humanity, but it's also really, really common in creation itself. So why don't you go ahead yeah. and take a few of those out, Nathan? Yeah. So you, you mentioned, if I could just touch on this, Disney, sure. for instance. Um, you know, Disney has about 40 movies that follow this theme. Um, but you can look at Cinderella. She was noble, then she fell, then she became noble again. You got Snow White. She was noble. She was kicked out. She died literally, and then was resurrected by a prince to become a princess. You've got Finding Nemo. They they go out. He rescues his son. They come back changed. I mean, it's just over and over. Hercules. Yeah. I mean, you could just go on and on. But but the reason why Disney picked up on it is because it is out there. It is a theme. Disney didn't create the theme. They just plugged into what nature was already teaching well, us. It's, it's, it's a beautiful artistic articulation of the human experience. Right. Exactly. That's why that's why people are attracted to it and watch it. And then they go ahead and just um, there's a there's a multitude of iterations of this um, out there in entertainment because it speaks to the to our souls as right. human beings and that we are, are ourselves uh, divine and that we're out here in this life on our own hero's journeys if we just have the eyes to see that. Yeah. So in a Native American culture, I, I wear this necklace called a Zia. I don't know if you can see it there, but the Zia is basically four lines in each direction, up and down and side to side. And Native Americans picked up on this idea of the, the birth or something that's comfortable, then, then suffering and death and then the rebirth. So they, they like to see that in the seasons. Uh, in the fall, things are relatively cool. Uh, the colors are very pretty. You have nice weather. And then suddenly comes the winter and everything dies. And then in the spring, everything is reborn. So you have the you have the life, you have the death, and then you have the rebirth. Uh, the Native Americans also saw it in the the directions north, south, east, and west, because with the changing of the seasons and the temperature, the animals that they were so dependent on for their life, they had to trace. The birds would come from the north and fly to the south in the winter, and then they would come back from the south to the north in the warm weather. The, the buffalo in the plains, at least in New Mexico, where we recently visited and learned about this, the buffalo actually traveled east to west, but also, again, with the seasons. And so this idea of you go one direction, then you come back was really important to Native American culture and life. Um, we see it in um, we see it in physics. So the life cycle of uh, planets and stars. OK, so we start with something that's somewhat chaotic. We have we have big gases of nebulous nebula gases in the universe. And over time, these gases attract each other and they come together and they form a star. Gravity brings them together and pressure creates light. But stars don't live forever. Stars either burn themselves out or they collapse on themselves. And in either case, they explode. 
And so they die and they explode and the gases are readmitted back into nature, into the universe. And then over time, they collect again. So we see this cycle of, of the birth of a star, the explosion of a star, the creation of the chaos, and then the rebirth of another star coming out of that. Um, probably for Christians, the most, uh, the most familiar example of this, or one of the most familiar examples might be the Garden of Eden story. So you have Adam and Eve who are placed in this garden state where they are comfortable, uh, immature, but comfortable. Certainly children uh, of kings and a king and a queen, so they are princes. But in that state, in the Garden of Eden, they're not capable of developing into what they can become, which is gods and goddesses like their parents. And so there had to be a fall. Eve became perplexed. She chose to eat the fruit to experience life, or what we would then call the hero's journey, so that she and her husband Adam could expand their understanding of love and suffering and each other and so forth, and evolve into the kings and queens that they were capable of becoming. Um, we see this in the account of the uh, the Jews, uh, the, the the Hebrews that were uh, enslaved in Egypt. So they were in Egypt. They were okay in the sense that they had food and they had employment and they had a roof over their head and they were kind of comfortable in some cases in this, this uh, nation of slaves to the Egyptians, but they also were suffering a little bit and they wanted more. And so Moses, uh, through a series of acts, is able to free them from Egypt and they go on this huge long journey through the wilderness uh, but the only reason they had to go through the journey in the wilderness is because they weren't ready for the promised land. God tried to give them a chance to go to the promised land and they weren't ready. So he sent them on a 40 year exodus through the wilderness to refine them and to change them into people that were then prepared to enter into the promised land. Can I ask a question about that? Sure. I'm, I'm not an expert on old Testament, but my memory, weren't they slaves? They weren't so they, employed they, they were slaves themselves they were slaves in egypt um, but again not everybody wanted to leave in fact we saw when moses brought them to uh, across the red sea and they started to have to go through this journey of we, we got to find our own food and we were on this long trip a lot of them wanted to go back i see so they were they were they were in fact enslaved but they in some ways were they, re resisting their independence correct they were okay. resisting the 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 refining experiences that God was giving sure. them. And, yeah. and many of them felt like, hey, we had it better in Egypt and wanted to go back. And God didn't really give them that option. Gotcha. Um, you know, and when they originally came to the promised land, they sent the 12 spies in and they said, 10 of them said, we can't do this. We can't take this land. And so God said, okay, you're not ready. So he sends them on this 40 year journey to refine the people and then brings them back to the promised land a second time. And now they're ready to go in and reclaim their inheritance. Got it. Um, another one, another example for me that I love is the life of Buddha. So Buddha uh, was born about 600 years before Christ, and he was a wealthy noble. He was born a prince to a, a king and a queen uh, in, in his uh, village. And early in his life, he took note of the poverty and suffering of the people around him and how much different his life was than others. And so he rejected his nobility. He rejected his wealth. Uh, and he left his, his father and his mother to go on his own journey of what we call enlightenment. And through his own studies, through his own experience, through some of his own practices of meditation, he became what we call the enlightened one because he became aware that everything is connected and that was really the thing for him that just became such an aha moment is, is that i i am the rich noble but i am also connected to the poor i am part of everything and so buddha kind of exemplified that journey um, the hindus have the very similar uh philosophy in their idea of the reincarnation while they believe literally that men and women and animals and plants are born multiple times on the earth the idea is that they're born, they have their experiences, they grow from those experiences, they die, and then they're reborn on the earth in order to have additional experiences. And they believe in this progression. 
they believe that you you progress from plant to animal to human and even in, in humans there's different levels of human progression and while i may not necessarily have the same belief that we're physically reborn on the earth multiple times the concept is right that we all have to go through this cycle of having something losing it and then being reborn into something better that's really fascinating nathan i'm thinking about how even I would suspect in all of the great religions, there are these beautifully, deeply embedded metaphorical truths, but at different stages of their own faith development within their own systems, people get a little bit literal. Right. <laughs> and um, maybe that's what's going on there that like metaphorically speaking, absolutely, reincarnation happens over and over and over again in the life of each human being. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. um, just the same way that our metaphorical, well, I believe it to be metaphorical story of Adam and Eve. Mm -hmm. is this it's the ultimate human version of or biblical version of the the hero's journey right which is there's the birth there's the death there's the resurrection mm -hmm. and so whether or not we believe that it literally happened to two human beings you know that were hanging out in the garden of eden with a snake in my mind is is less important than the fact that it teaches us something deep deep as the sea right <laughs> and profound about ourselves correct yeah yeah, and, I, and I've heard people, for instance, criticize the story of Adam and Eve, the book of Genesis, by saying, oh, it wasn't part of the original Hebrew Bible. It was added hundreds of years later, and the story came from a totally different culture. Uh, some people say it was like, like a Phoenician culture or something. I'm probably getting that wrong. But they said it didn't even come from the Hebrews. It was adopted by the Hebrews. And you know what I say to that? Great, because that would just become one more evidence that throughout all people and all cultures and all history, they understood this cycle. The more cultures that testify of the truth of a particular cycle or, or myth, as you call it, or archetype story, the more believable it gets. Yes. So to me, saying that that may have come from a different culture and wasn't part of the Hebrew Bible only testifies further of the truth of this principle that everybody understood it. Well, it, it means to me that things that are not literally true are often truer right. than, the, than the things <laughs> that are literally true right. because they are that you see them throughout culture and throughout time. And that makes them true only in just a different way. Yeah, it, it, it makes it more true. The, it the transcends more, it, right? The more different cultures testify of the same truth, the, the more, yeah, exactly. The more transcended it seems to be. So the more heed I would give to it. Yes. So now we talk about, you know, this also in terms of Christianity. So Jesus Christ uh, literally embodied this idea of a life, a suffering, a death, and then a resurrection. Um, and oftentimes in the LDS culture, we teach that because Jesus Christ died and was resurrected, the rest of us will. Uh, but that's actually not true. And I'm going to read directly from the book of Corinthians, where Paul points out that the cycle already existed. Jesus just put himself into it to teach us about it. So in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 13, Paul writes this. He says, but if there be no resurrection of the dead then is Christ not risen? This is very interesting because he didn't say if Christ was resurrected from the dead, the rest of us will be. What he said is if there's no resurrection, then Christ couldn't have been resurrected. And just to prove that he meant what he said, he says it again in verse 16. He says, for if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. So Paul's teaching, first we see this cycle that God, Elohim, and God our mother set up. First is the cycle that they set up of birth, suffering, and death, and then a resurrection, and that Christ plugged himself into that for the purposes of going through it himself because he needed it, but also to teach us that it was okay. It's okay to be born into something, to die to that thing, and then to be resurrected into something better. He personified it for us so we wouldn't be afraid of it. But clearly in the, in the book of Corinthians, Paul is teaching us the pattern existed. Christ just joined the pattern. It reminds me, Nathan, of how when we were talking about the infinite nature of the atonement a few episodes ago in our Strength of the Youth series, mm -hmm. that somebody, I can't remember if it was one of our small groups or it was an email that came in that said, I need to, like he, he said, I believe what you're saying. It makes so much sense, the infinite nature of Jesus Christ's love and the atoning sacrifice. And then he went on to say, but I'm having now to make sense of why did he need to die on the cross and be resurrected? And he says, I don't necessarily need you to answer that question, but this is going to be the topic of my personal contemplation 
for the next several days. Okay. So you out there, you know, you're who you are. <laughs> this is, I actually asked Nathan, um, and we talked about this after I read the email and I said, it's, these are, this is a beautiful thought experiment. Let's talk a little bit about why he did in fact, um, will offer himself up to go on the cross, to suffer in the garden, to go to the tomb and then to be raised again, mm-hmm. because was that mandatory in and of itself for the infinite atonement to actually take place? My, my answer to that is probably not, right? I yeah, mean, so, I mean, my answer to that would be, I don't know. Right, it's kind of tricky, yeah. So I guess what I'm, yeah, that's that's a fair, I don't know, let's I, just- I don't know, mm-hmm. but what I, see, what, what I can see from what we've learned is that the pattern already existed and Christ himself had to go through it, okay? And, and we know from our own theology, God himself went through it. As, as man is, God once was, as God is, man may become, so taught Joseph Smith in one of his most profound moments, Christ had to do the same thing. Christ had to be experience mortality. Then he had to recognize there was more. Then he had to suffer and die and be reborn into something better. And by so doing, taught us, his followers, that it's okay. Yes. It's, in fact, it's necessary. Well, and we're going to actually dive into this very idea even a little bit deeper further on in our time together today because it matters. And the idea that Jesus Christ let himself hang on a cross for us is a really, really important component of our own understanding of Jesus Christ. And yet also at the same time, I, I want to go, go ahead and highlight and underscore what you're saying right now, Nathan, which is that yes, I, I believe there was a deep symbolic importance in his willingness to literally die and then, and then rise again that there was a birth, there was a death, there was a resurrection. Mm-hmm. And I love that we celebrate, you know, we celebrate Christmas and we celebrate Easter, but those are the celebrations of this very cycle of life that every one of us goes through over and over and over again. I don't even like to think of it as like um, stair steps. I like to think of it as a spiral right? where we go around and around, but each time we go around, we're a little further beyond where we were before. Exactly. And so it's a, it's an actual, um, what do I want to call it? Like an upward spiral. Right. And yeah, what were you going to say? No, I was going to say, and, and that is where it differs a little bit from some of the stage theory that we've talked about is that both of you, both of those theories move you forward, but this sort of spiral theory, like you called it, mm. uh, reminds us that we all are kind of moving forward, then moving back, then moving forward, then moving back. But each time we kind of take a step forward, it's a little further forward than it was the time before. So it's kind of like the, t- the three steps forward, two steps back, and then three more steps forward. But every time it's expanding into something new, something better, something wider, something more expansive, something more loving than the time before. But it requires ongoing birth, ongoing death, and ongoing resurrection. Right. Okay, so let's go deeper now. Are you ready? Are you ready yeah. for us to? Okay, yeah, let's move on. so let's go deeper into the way uh, Father Rohr talks about this, and he says it so beautifully that I'm going to actually do a little bit of direct reading from this. This uh, it's actually in the appendix of the Universal Christ, and once again, I will link this, or probably I won't link it. I always say that I will, and I don't. I don't tend to link a lot of things. I will set it. I will. I will. <laughs> sorry, something popped on the screen. I will go ahead and put the put it down on the show notes. Okay, so Rohr breaks it down into three stages, and he actually names the three stages in two different ways. So I'm going to try my very best to be as clear as I can on this. The three stages he walks us through is what he calls order, disorder, and reorder. But order matches with the idea of birth. And disorder matches with the idea of death. And reorder matches with the idea of resurrection. I know you kind of sometimes call it rebirth. But either, Rebirth, either one, mm-hmm. either one. Yeah. And with the disorder, I would actually add sometimes suffering should be included in there, but on which one uh, disorder. disorder, disorder, death. And, and in there is a little bit, it has to be some suffering. So but. think about this, if you will. Um, so many of you who come to this podcast and who are sharing this uh, far and wide with your loved ones and friends, you're here because you're in that middle one. You're in the disorder or the suffering or the death phase. And so I want you to kind of, um, I'm thinking about us, you and me as we ourselves are walking through this um, spiral and recognize, if you will, that this is in fact an upward spiral because when we're in this disorder or death stage, it feels like a downward spiral. But I'm here to say, and this is why I'm obsessed with stage theory, 
it orients me better. It helps me recognize that what I am experiencing is in fact progressive. I am spiraling upwards and we know what that means. And from the metaphorical perspective, I am coming closer to God through this spiraling period, even though what it feels like is downward. It feels um, very disorienting and very frightening, but it's upward. Okay. So let's just let's take a few minutes. I'm going to talk about, we're going to talk about each of these sections or each of these stages. I will read what Roar has to say. And then Nathan and I are going to pause and just make a few um, thoughts and comments on them. Okay. This is what Roar talks about the order phase or birth. He says this, at this first stage, if we were granted it or, uh, and not all are, we feel innocent and safe. Everything is basically good. It all means something. And we feel we're part of what looks like is normal and deserved. It is our first naivete. It explains everything and thus feels like it is straight from God, solid and forever. Those who try to stay in this first satisfying explanation of how things are and should be will tend to refuse and avoid any confusion, conflict, inconsistencies, suffering, or darkness. They do not like disorder in any form. Even many Christians do not like anything that looks like, quote, carrying the cross. This is, um, this is the huge price that we have paid for just thanking Jesus for what he did on the cross instead of actually imitating him. Disorder or change is always to be avoided, the ego believes. So let's just hunker down and pretend that my status quo is entirely good, should be good for everybody, and is always true and even the only truth. But permanent residence in this stage tends to create either willing naivete, I'm sorry, I'm going to start that over. But willing permanent residence in this stage tends to create either willingly naive people or control freaks, and, and very often a combination of both. I have found it invariably operates in a worldview of scarcity and hardly ever from abundance. Amen. Beautiful. Yes. Anything you want to add to that before I jump into the disorder phase, Nathan? Well, I think on, on at first glance, it, it looks a lot like people who are in stage two of PECS um, uh, stages of development. Right. So these are people orthodoxy who mm -hmm. are orthodox and very comfortable in that. Okay. These are some of our own family members or people we go to church with. When we ask them questions about what do you think about blacks uh, members who couldn't hold the priesthood or go to the temple? What do you think about Joseph's practice of polygamy? And they say things like, Oh, I choose not to study that. Or I choose not to read about it because it might be too troubling to me. I don't want to know what those histories are. Um, and so they are avoiding the hard conversations. They are avoiding the hard uh, topics because they want to stay naive and rigid. Well, and it's, it is, in fact, it, it's comfortable. It's orderly. By definition, right. our little human brains, we crave and thrive in order until our brains are ready for the next thing, which right. is called growth. <laughs> right. This is Adam yeah. saying, Eve, do you know what fruit that is? You just ate the fruit. And she's like, yeah, I know I ate the fruit, but Adam's all panicky because he's seeing his world going up in smoke, this comfortable garden where he's just running around tending the plants and petting the animals is about to go away. And he's kind of panicked about it. That's this kind of order thing. We like it. It's comfortable. But the problem is, is that it doesn't really answer the soul's questions. Well, and it's not progressive. Right. And so just again, I want to keep us, um, I want to keep grounding us in our own personal experiences here because I speak, I spend so much time with so many of you in my small groups of people that are navigating the most painful thing that we are navigating in this place um, where we are, where we're, we're, we're in the next phase, which I'm a little jumping ahead, but basically what I'm trying to say is we're in disorder, but we're working with and married to and spending a lot of our time with people in order. And we're having to navigate extreme amounts of their anxiety and the anxiety that we bring them mm -hmm. by being disorderly, right? <laughs> right? And so they're they're managing uh, truckloads of anxiety here. And once again, I think once we have a lay of the land and have a map of what's going on, maybe we can be a little bit more compassionate towards them and patient that they're they're where they they're where they're able to be. This is where they are because developmentally, this is all that they can be right now. Mm -hmm. Okay. Is it time? Yes, okay. Let's move on to uh, Richard Rohr's phase number two. He calls this disorder or in the birth, death, and resurrection cycle. This is the death part. 
Okay, so here's the disorder phase. This is what Richard Rohr says. Eventually, your ideally ordered universe, your, your private salvation will and must disappear and disappoint you if you are honest. As Leonard Cohen puts it, there is a crack in everything, and that is how the light gets in. Beautiful. Yes. Rohr goes on to say this. These are some examples of what tends to happen to some of us. Your wife dies. Your father loses his job. You were rejected. On the playground as a child, you find out that you are needy and sexual. You, feel, you fail an exam for a coveted certification, or you finally realize that many people are excluded from your own, from, from own well-deserved life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. This is the disorder stage, or what Adam and Eve have called the fall. It is necessary in some form if any real growth is to occur. But some of us must find the stage so uncomfortable that we try to flee back to our first created order, even if it is killing us. Yeah. So, you know, that idea of fleeing back is what we talked about. The Egypt, the, the, the children of Israel wanted to go back to Egypt. Okay. That, that people sometimes are so afraid of the pain of change that they want to try to force themselves back into that original way of living or thinking. Well, what most of us realize, though, with a lot of pain and suffering at this realization is we can't go back. Right. Right. As much as we want to and wish we could go back into the garden. I've had many, many a moment in my own suffering through as I've worked myself, you know, as I'm working in this disorderly phase sometimes of thinking of the metaphor of the Garden of Eden. Right. Like, I wish I were, you know, naked in a weaving a basket. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it was in my, it was such simpler times back or then. Or if I could go back to my parents' house and be a five-year-old again. Right. Where they took care of all the problems. But yes. You, but you can't. And then he also goes back. I'm going to just jump back into the quote here. He also talks about how sometimes we may take permanent residence in disorder and how this too is not ideal. He says this, permanent residence in disorder tends to make people rather negative and cynical, usually angry and quite opinionated and dogmatic about one form of political correctness or another as they search for some solid ground. Some accuse religious people of being overly dogmatic, and yet this stymied position worships disorder itself as though it too were a dogma. Quote, I reject all universal explanations except for one, that there are no universal explanations, close quote, is what this seems to be saying. So this, this disorderly phase can in and of itself become its own rigid dogma. Rohr goes on to say such universal cynicism and skepticism becomes their universal explanation, their operative religion, and also their greatest vulnerability. Any thoughts on that, Nathan? Yeah, so we, we've talked about this, you and I, before. Um, but when people who are used to order become stressed, they tend to do one of two things. They either become very rigid or they become very chaotic. They, they often become very rigid or very chaotic. They either try to go back to that first birth, okay, or that first stage two, or they live in the chaos and assume that that's how it has to be. They sort of become this postmodernist philosophy of, okay, science didn't fix my problems, so there are no answers to the problems, and we just have to live in, in chaos. And what Father War wants us to understand, and others who have talked about this, is that neither the rigidity of the order stage nor the chaos of the painful transformative stage are a final destination. And yet, actually, both of them are incredibly important. And, and necessary, right? They're necessary yes. in order to get to the resurrection or the reorder. We must be born and we must die yep. and go through all of the things that are encompassed in each of those mandatory states of being. Right. Yeah. So the stages have to exist. Um, we can't fight them. We, we can't resist them. But the other problem is you can't camp there either. Well, right. And I'm going to cir circle you back to it. We, we actually do fight them and resist them like crazy. Okay. We shouldn't. <laughs> and life will push us. I mean, we, we cannot stay in the Garden of Eden. Life will push us out of the Garden of Eden one way or the other. Yeah. But don't you think there are some people that die there, Nathan? You know, there are. <laughs> I, I guess there are just people that lie to themselves right. or, or choose naivety. Yes. Um, and And... They don't face the cognitive dissonance that obviously exists for the rest yes. of the world. Um, and, and so I guess life is trying to help them grow up. It's trying to help them push, but they keep resisting it 
but eventually we all suffer. I mean, we can't get away from suffering. The problem is, is that not everybody makes suffering into a transformative event. Okay. I can, I can get behind that. They hold the suffering within themselves. So what I, what I guess what I should say is, is that we can't avoid the suffering of life, but we can resist the change that it is trying to push us towards. Yep. That would be a, probably a better way for me to I say love it. that. Yes. Amen, brother. Yep. Okay. Is it time? Let's do it. Okay. So I'm going to talk now about this third stage, reorder or resurrection. And this is what Father Rohr says here. He says, every religion, each in its own way, is talking about getting you to this stage of reorder. Various systems would call these, um, they use different words, such as enlightenment, exodus, nirvana, heaven, salvation, springtime, or resurrection. It is the life on the other side of death, the victory on the other side of failure, the joy on the other side of the pain of childbirth. It is an insistence on going through, not under, over, or around. Did you guys know that the truly the most spiritual song ever written was going on a bear hunt? <laughs> right? I can't tell you how many times I make reference to that in my as a therapist. That's funny. Yeah. Very deep truths right there. Okay, sorry. Back to the quote. There is no nonstop flight to reorder. To arrive there, we must endure, learn from, and include that disorder stage, transcending the first naive order, but also still including it. It amounts to the best of the conservative and the best of the liberal positions. They hold on to what was good about the first order, but also offer the very needed correctives. People who have reached this stage, like the Jewish prophets, might also be called radical traditionalists, mm. loving their truth and their group enough to critique it, mm -hmm. critiquing it enough to maintain their own integrity and intelligence. These wise ones have stopped overreacting, but they also have stopped overdefending. They are usually a small minority of humans. That just fills me with chills. Yeah. Any I mean, thoughts on that? No, I, I think you said it great. Um, I, I just love the idea that it's a place of total peace with what is. Yeah. There are things here that are good. There are things here that are bad. There are things that I love. There are things that I want to change. It's, it's Buddha's enlightenment. It's the Hindu's nirvana. It's the Christian's heaven. It's this place where you can just be so okay with what is well and i think what you're describing too nathan has less to do with a place to go right mm -hmm. and it has more to do with a state of being absolutely meaning that heaven who knows what heaven is um out there yonder <laughs> but what we do know is that we can have heaven or or work towards i hate to say it that way we we can grow towards grow towards, towards mm -hmm. heaven within right the whole kingdom of god is within idea i love that idea that the kingdom of god can be within each of us. Now, I want to just transition, if I may, for just a minute, Nathan. And I want us, uh, let's talk a little bit about Notre Dame. Notre Dame. Notre Dame. Okay, so Nathan and I are um, big BYU fans. And um, we've raised a couple of our kids um, along that. We, a couple of our kids are big BYU fans, especially one of them. And so anyhow, we have, well, let's just put it. I, I watch BYU while I'm doing something else. So I'm present in the room while, while many a BYU game is going on. Nathan and the boys, at least, are very into BYU. So a few years ago, we got on an airplane and traveled to Notre Dame University. Is that how you say it? Or is it University of Notre Dame? That can you? Okay, well, I've outed myself. We call it, we just call it Notre, Notre Dame. Dame. Okay, <laughs> very good. So I'm not too off, off the mark by not knowing that. Okay, so we, we live in the Midwest. Of course, of course, Notre Dame is also in the Midwest. So we show up to Notre Dame University. It's in the fall. It's, it's a perfect football day. And we toured the campus, which I have to say, maybe one of the most beautiful campuses in the fall that I've ever seen. Mm, gorgeous. We get to our seats in the stadium and we hit the jackpot. Not because we were low down. We were rather high up, but we were perfectly situated to look from afar and view what Nathan taught me was called Touchdown Jesus. Okay, so why don't you describe what Touchdown Jesus is, Nathan, and then so, we're going to talk about why this matters. Yeah, so one of the buildings that's near the stadium on the Notre Dame campus has a huge mural. I, I, I'm just making this up. I don't know, but it, it's probably like a 15-story building, and on the side of it is a huge mural of Jesus standing there with his arms straight up in the air like this, 
like a referee would signal when somebody scores a touchdown. And the irony is that Jesus is doing that behind one of the end zones on this mural behind the stadium. And so it looks like Jesus is signaling to the football team that a touchdown has just been scored. And so they nicknamed that mural Touchdown Jesus. Okay, so let's spend a couple of seconds, Nathan, talking about the difference between Touchdown Jesus and those of you that are watching this on YouTube can see Nathan doing some very strange <laughs> things with his arms. Yes. <laughs> so there's a difference between Touchdown Jesus, which is the Western, especially Americanized version of Jesus Christ, as opposed to Jesus Christ hanging on the cross mm -hmm. with his arms straight out. out. Okay. As opposed to up. Okay. So why don't you take away, take that away for just a second, Nathan? So the idea of the touchdown Jesus is sort of like Valerie said, the, the, the Western idea that Jesus's purpose is to make everything good and happy and easy. We just scored a touchdown. Your team just won. And I, as Jesus with my arms up, I'm here to tell you that everything is really good and you just achieved what you needed to achieve, that your purpose is to to score points, it's to, to have a happy life, it's to make all the right choices. And I am here to confirm with my arms straight up that you did everything right, achieved the right things, and it's symbolized by this, this touchdown. So it's the ultimate symbol of the prosperity gospel. Right. You do this and I give you whatever, success, love, wealth, seven heaven, points. seven points if you're a football player. And it is the ultimate ideal of an upwardly mobile Christianity of the 21st century. Mm -hmm. Okay. And what Richard Rohr is pushing back against is no wonder a lot of Christians, um, Latter-day Saints included, many evangelicals and Protestants as well, are very, very angsty and uncomfortable with this iteration of Jesus Christ, because it is not necessarily the prototype of how we want to feel. Right. The idea of him on the cross, I guess I should say. Right. So touchdown Jesus is how we want to feel <laughs> successful, lucrative with the right relationships, with the right kind of house, did all the right things, did all the right things, got all the right rewards, checked off the, you know, the check, the checklist gospel that is touchdown Jesus. Okay. So let's now move over to Jesus Christ on the cross, which a lot of the Catholics, um, and especially what would you call the, the Western Catholics are more um, open to and interested in, mm -hmm. yeah. right? And so just to, um, I'm going to read a little quote here from, from Richard Rohr, Universal Christ. He says this, um, that when we're looking at Jesus Christ on the cross, we're looking at an image of what most humans deny and are most afraid of. Exposure, shame, vulnerability, and failure. Mm. Like a homeopathic medicine, Jesus became the problem on full display to free us from that very problem. The cross withdraws the curtains of both denial and fear from our eyes and from our psyches. Jesus became the victim so that we could stop victimizing others or playing the victim ourselves. Mm -hmm. Jesus on the cross willed himself to be all of the things that the upwardly mobile Western American fears the most right and so this idea about the victim so if if a if a tit-for-tat christian feels like they're doing everything right and yet something bad happens to them they they get cancer or their spouse leaves them or a child dies or they lose their job and you've done everything right then the idea is well somebody else must be the problem so we create victims it must be I had a bad boss or it must be that, you know, my doctor failed to diagnose something early and we want to blame other people. And what Jesus is teaching us on the cross is no, just hold it. It's okay. I, God, the greatest of all, whoever walked the earth am hanging on this cross, suffering, humiliated, naked, hungry, thirsty, and about to die. And I'm teaching you that this is the way. And it's okay. You don't need to find a victim. You don't need to blame somebody else. You don't need to blame God. You don't need to blame anybody. It's just the way. So hold it. Be okay with it. Put down the touchdown arms and go into the suffering and ask yourself this. What do I need to learn about myself in this moment? 
And I think what Jesus Christ does on the cross is he gives us the beautiful example of what it means to be naked, to be humble, to be wounded, mm-hmm. and to allow that to be. Let me just, if I may, read what, uh, this is again, Father Rohr. He, he writes a little bit of a poem talking about how we can see Jesus Christ, and through seeing Jesus Christ, we can um, experience this death and this disorder period um, from a place that helps us um, be a little bit more um, accepting or, or do the surrendering that is necessary to make us over in the image of God. He says this, this is, uh, he's calling this um, as we speak to the crucified one. He says, I thank you for becoming finite and limited. So I do not have to pretend that I am infinite or limitless. I thank you for becoming small and inferior so that I do not have to pretend that I am big and superior to anybody. I thank you for holding our shame and nakedness so boldly and so publicly, so I do not need to hide or deny our human reality. I thank you for accepting exclusion and expulsion, being crucified outside of the walls, and allowing me to know that I can meet you exactly there. I thank you for becoming sin, so that I do not need to deny my own failures and can recognize that even my mistakes are the truest and most surprising path to love. I thank you for becoming weak so that I do not have to pretend to be strong. I thank you for being willing to be considered imperfect, wrong, and strange so that I do not have to be perfect or right or idealize the so-called normal. I thank you for not being loved or liked by so many so that I do not have to try so hard to be loved or liked by anybody. I thank you for being considered a failure so that I do not have to pretend or even try to be a success. I thank you for allowing yourself to be considered wrong by the standards of both state and religion so that I do not have to be right anywhere. I thank you for being poor in every way so that I do not have to seek being rich in any way. And I thank you, Brother Jesus, for being all of these things that humanity despises and fears so that I can fully accept myself and everyone else in and through you. Mm. It's beautiful. Why don't we go ahead, um, unless you, did you have anything you wanted to add to that, Nate, before we go ahead and um, talk a little bit about this, kind of close up our, our time together today? No, I, I think that's just a beautiful uh, poem, a poem prayer that, yes. that he wrote. To remind ourselves that all of those things are okay and necessary. Necessary. Actually, it's mandatory for those of us who are truly committed to growth, who those of us who are interested in um, going through, or at least um, willing to go through the suffering so that we can, in fact, um, become um, truly made over in, in God's image and in the image of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Mm-hmm. Okay, so Richard Rohr goes ahead and closes um, by talking about how um, it's okay to be resistant to this disorder stage. Like none of us want to be in disorder. What we really want is we do in fact want the round or the, we want the one-way ticket without the layover in disorder and resurrection. We want to go from birth to resurrection. We want to go from order to reorder, but he's, he's saying in a really sweet and somewhat comical way, I get it. You guys, I do too. And yet none of us can have it that way. That is not the way it works. This is what he says. He says, this journey from order to reorder, sorry, this journey from order to disorder to reorder must happen for all of us. It is not something just to be admired in Abraham, Moses, Job, and Jesus. Our role is to listen and allow, and at least slightly cooperate with this almost natural progression. We all come to wisdom at a major price of both our innocence and our control, which means that few of us go there willingly. Disorder must normally be thrust upon us. Why would anyone choose it? I wouldn't. I want you guys, I'm going to pause, close the quote for a minute and just think about that. Whatever it is that you're going through, if you're in the midst of massive disorder and disorganization, um, things that feel um, really uncommonly challenging, say, for example, in um, your marriage or in your relationships with people around you, and if you're very, very... um, a discombobulated and going through a lot of grief and disorientation. I'm here to say that it's normal. What you're feeling is incredibly uncomfortable, but yet it is part of the process of growth. Okay. Back to Roar. He says this, 
I want to repeat that there is no nonstop flight from order to reorder or from disorder to reorder unless you dip back into what was good and helpful, but also limited about most initial presentations of order and even the tragedies of disorder or wounding. I'm not sure why God created the world this way, but I have come to trust the universal myths and stories. Those are the things that you were talking about at the beginning, Nathan. Yep. Okay, back to Roar. He says, between beginning and end, the great stories inevitably reveal a conflict, a contradiction, a confusion, a fly in the ointment of our self-created paradise. This sets the drama in motion and gives it momentum and humility. Everybody, of course, initially shoots for happiness. But most books that I have ever read seem to be some version of how suffering refined, taught, and formed people. Maintaining our initial order is not itself happiness. We must expect and wait for that second naivete, which is given more than it is created or engineered by us. Happiness is the spiritual outcome and the result of full growth and maturity, and this is why I am calling it reorder. You are taken to happiness. You cannot find your way there by willpower or cleverness, and yet we all try. <laughs> We seem inconsistent on not recognizing this universal pattern of growth and change. Trees grow strong by the reason of winds and storms. Boats were not meant to live in permanent dry dock or harbor. Baby animals must be educated by their mothers in the hard ways of survival, or they will always die in their youth. It seems that each of us has to learn on our own with so much kicking and screaming what is well hidden, but also in plain sight. Holds us up, Nathan. Well, what are your thoughts? Fantastic. So I think the way I would try to summarize this is this. In our lives, we will all go through these cycles, these some small, some bigger, but it will happen throughout our lives as we grow. Every growth experience has to come from this cycle. We have something in our lives that we like and we're comfortable with, then there is some sort of a suffering or a cognitive dissonance or some crack that shows us that the way we are is not enough to fix our problems, answer our questions, or lead us to a true happiness. And then there's some suffering, some uh, breakdown of our understanding, some reordering of our thoughts, and even a death to an old idea or concept and a rebirth finally into a much broader way to see and to love. But after that happens, we're still not godlike people. And so we continuously have to take ideas, thoughts, names, false self-images, shadows, relationships, that everything in our life will have to stand up to this process at some point of it was comfortable, but insufficient. It has to cause me suffering. It has to go away. And then I have to turn around and see it in a better and new way. And that cycle will happen over and over. And you'll see it a little bit, like there'll be little daily things like this. There will be longer things, and then there'll be a lifelong thing, and they'll all fit into this pattern. And, and what, what the archetypes across all of culture have taught us, and, and specifically what Jesus's life taught us, is you can't get away from it. There will be these problems. There will be this suffering. But the people who grow are the ones who lean into it. They embrace it. They say, what am I to learn from this humiliation? What am I to learn from this suffering? What am I to learn from this nakedness? And with that contemplative mind comes answers that allow us to grow into something bigger and more beautiful on the backside of it. That's kind of my summary. I love it. I couldn't have said it better myself. Thank you for that. <laughs> So great to be with you all today. I hope this, uh, I was just going to say this fireside. <laughs> I hope this podcast episode resonates with you and I hope you can feel our love for you. Um, we feel as if we are on a journey with a, a multitude of, of beautiful, beautiful people. And I'm so very, very grateful for all of you who are here. And I'm really extra grateful for those of you who are open enough and willing enough to share this podcast with other people. It is our deepest desire and hopes that this podcast will um, help move and shift our little church institution into something that is um, healthier, more whole, more wise, more compassionate. And that happens because of you. 
it's your sharing that moves this, um, the, the needle even ever so slightly. And if you share it and then they share it and on and on and on, um, that beautiful butterfly effect takes place. So I encourage you to please share this podcast with those in your circles. Also, if this is something that is resonating with you enough and you're interested in being part of a small community that talks um, together every day on Marco Polo and in a small Facebook page and meets with me and sometimes with Nathan on a weekly basis, that we have small groups that are forming and currently running. And if you're interested in being a part of one of these small groups, I would encourage you to please let me know and I will get you on a wait list. I believe they are currently all full, but they um, there is some turnover every three months. And so there is likely always room for you if this is something that interests you. So go ahead and reach out to me at info at ValerieHammaker.com or on Instagram at Latter-day Struggles Podcast, and we can get you connected. And one, uh, one more thing is that if you are interested in some individual therapy or coaching, you can also reach out to me. I have employees that work for me and that are trained under me, and they have long-term openings, and I am making my schedule available for some people if they want some um, time-limited consults. And if you're interested in either of those, once again, info at ValerieHammaker.com or on Instagram at Latter-day Struggles Podcast. Okay, you all, so good to be with each of you and we will see you guys um, and gals next time. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.